Welcome to a very special Money on the Left episode. This is an unconventional episode uh, in that I am being joined by not my regular co-hosts, uh, William Sass and uh, Maximilian Sejo, but instead our uh, beloved colleagues, Assistant Professor of Human Development at SUNY Binghamton, Jakob Feinick. Welcome, Jakob. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. And Associate Professor of Economics at SUNY Cortland, Benjamin Wilson. Glad to be here. So we're convening this irregular uh, Money on the Left episode in order to uh, kind of update our listeners about and discuss uh, the project that we have been variously working on, us and others in our Money on the Left collective, uh, for uh, university financing using a modern monetary theory and endogenous money approach. Um, and we call this project, if you're not aware of it yet, the Uni Currency Project. We've been developing it uh, over the course of several years. It started during um, the, the early pandemic moment when austerity was being threatened and sometimes uh, uh, enacted in all kinds of uh, unjust ways. Um, and we, we developed it in order to provide a an alternative and hopefully not just a a, a, a financial alternative, but a, a just new direction for university expenditure and governance, essentially. And uh, we've written many papers uh, in on different platforms uh, over the, the past couple of years. So last year, we were invited as a group to join and begin collaborating with an exciting other group that's been doing important um, advocacy and uh, politicizing around university financing. And that is the Scholars for a New Deal for Higher Education. And we were aware of what they were up to, and we were excited about what they were up to. We, we felt that they were missing the the MMT approach that we brought to the table. And so they invited us to the table and they were all really great and nice. And we, we had some meetings and we taught each other about what we were up to. And next thing we knew, this group, and in fact, a very specific kind of subcommittee in that group on finance, on university finance, was invited by the American Association of University Professors publication, which is called Academe Magazine, to put together a special issue, a special issue of the magazine, um, which would eventually be titled Revolutionizing Higher Education Finance for the Public Good. And then a couple members of our team, not all of us, but a couple members of our team, uh, Ben Wilson and myself, took up the task of writing what is essentially an updated version of the uni project that we have been developing. So, so the purpose of this particular episode is to work through this latest iteration of the UNI project that is being published in the October issue of, of Academe Magazine, but also to reflect upon where we've been and how this project has unfolded over time. We have published a lot about the UNI. We've talked about the UNI in different episodes, like our episode with with Ben Wilson, um, but we haven't really dedicated a whole audio conversation to the uni, and that's what we're up to today. And Jakob has has kind of been in the wings the whole time. He hasn't been part of the core team, but he's been a, a, a trusted advisor and editor in the background. And we thought, what 
what a better person, also given his own interests in moral economies of money, to to reflect on this project with us. And we've we've given him today the the job of let's say moderator, uh, who will you know, we have a list of questions that he's written up for us that we're going to use to kind of catalyze the conversation as we move forward. But it, it can also be a, an open, free flowing kind of thing. Does that sound good, guys? Perfect. Sounds great. All right. Okay. So uh, my first question would be, what uh, what does the, the crisis of higher ed today look like from maybe other critical lenses first? And then how is that different from your approach to uh, addressing uh, and improving the life of people on campuses, but also the people who live adjacent to campuses? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I think it, it moves through various iterations depending on the the timing of when you talk to people, you know, having started in higher ed just after the fin financial crisis and then kind of seeing the COVID-19 pandemic unfolding and seeing many of the same struggles and questions arising again, the thing that comes up in our union meetings, for example, is, you know, people complain about being overworked and not being compensated, being asked to do more uh, than what their job actually entails. And this this real utilization of us as care workers by administration uh, to get us to do more, uh, more with less, because, you know, as a a doctoral faculty member that's teaching students, right? My my priority is always my students. And so even if I'm getting less, I'm still putting out the same sort of efforts uh, and care toward my students. And this, for this way of discussing about, you know, the problems that we're facing often just devolve into this like complain soapbox section where we're all like sharing the, the various ways in which we're being exploited without really being able to articulate how to solve that problem. And, and the only way that uh, the current sort of paradigm presents for us to solve those problems is, A, either the state has to yield more money for universities or the federal government has to do that. And there's this sort of helplessness in that sort of idea because it's just so distant and far off from where we are at the table and where we are in our day-to-day -day working to try to you know, get through a pandemic higher education year. So, for example, you know, the, the SUNY system, you know, hasn't really increased the state budget since the financial crisis. In fact, uh, the recent estimates by our faculty senate say that we've actually had a real reduction in the funding of higher education in the state of New York by approximately $440 million since the financial crisis. So we're, we've been asked to do more with less for a very long time. And that gives it, that presents great challenges for trying to ask for more, especially when we fell short at my university, apparently, uh, in budget terms by $10 million last year. Uh, so there's this sort of dread and hopelessness that there's no way that we can do better. And in fact, we've been able to, we are again being asked to do more with less. Uh, and so I would say what the uni, uh, what our objective of this project is, is to, to allow us to move beyond that sort of narrow confine and to relieve the students as being the biggest 
bearer of the financing of the university, right, through tuition and fees and rents uh, and so on and so forth. And, and imagine what higher ed would look like if it was able to self-finance uh, and to create its own credits and to model sort of the, the behavior that MMT has made so clear that is available to the United States government through the creation of the dollar and its sub-relationships with the banking sector in order to mobilize resources uh, that our communities see as valuable and necessary. Terrific. And maybe you could just spell out for, for listeners how that would work in practice. Just outline maybe the basic architecture of that currency. Of the uni specifically? Exactly, yes. Uh -huh. So, you know, this is a complicated question because I think there's really two distinct paths that we've been talking about as the development of the uni has, has advanced, right? So in this case of modern monetary theory, the U.S. government can issue its, it, it does issue the dollar, right? It's the sole issuer of the dollar, the monopoly issuer, and all these stories that uh, I think most of our listeners are pretty familiar with. What I'm interested in is why stop at the U.S. government, right? What would it look like if subnational or nested uh, institutions within the system were given that sort of freedom? And, and we have a model of that with the banking sector. And I think the crisis in particular, the great financial crisis and then with COVID, uh, really exposed the connect connections between the banking sector and the federal government uh, through the way the Federal Reserve backstops uh, the, the creation of their instruments uh, in times of crisis. So what would it look like if universities were able to issue credit to mobilize resources the same way that the banking sector did? What would that backstop sort of look like from like a macro sort of perspective is one approach to the uni. Uh, the other approach to the uni that we've been advocating for is one that's <clears throat> familiar to, to those that have studied at places like UMKC and Denison and Bard University, where in order to demonstrate um, how a sovereign or uh, you know, the issue of the currency process works and tax-driven reciprocal obligations operate, right? We've run this sort of program in our classrooms to demonstrate the possibilities of full employment and a job guarantee and the, the reality that spending creates the space for taxation and that the taxation creates demand for the currency. So the the uni project could begin in that sort of those humble beginnings to build sort of the grassroots understanding of how it operates and then leverage up uh, to sort of these larger institutional legal fabric sort of ideas, um, sort of a learning by doing process that would, you know, gradually step the, the reciprocal obligations from, say, a certain percentage of the grade in the classroom to tuition or the payments on campus for fees. And when we're doing public goods production through our classrooms and learning by doing projects, connecting those to uh, the, the municipality in various ways through potentially acceptance through uh, property taxes and things of this nature are ways that we could create the political momentum and pressure to start um, utilizing this in, in bigger and bigger spaces. 
uh, rather than simply thinking of it from this top-down perspective that is, you know, admittedly a very hard thing to teach uh, and for people to, to grapple with at times. So I think this by, you know, ground up grassroots sort of approach is one of the things that's really exciting about the uni, but it can also be something that maybe causes a little bit of confusion for folks. That's really fascinating. So it sounds like you think of the uni also as a multi-level pedagogical project, right? That is about you've started to implement a classroom currency that actually works. Um, you've started teaching or you've done that for years together with many others, teaching about how public finance actually works and what the implications are for how we think about our lives together and how we want to organize our lives together. And now you're kind of adding intermediate layers, right? From, from the classroom currency, the federal dollar, and there is, you know, something that, that goes beyond the classroom, but doesn't, doesn't aspire yet to have the reach of the federal dollar, right? So, and, and each of those levels teaches people uh, about monetary life in different ways. Would, would that be fair to say? Yeah, I think that that's absolutely, you know, the objective here, or one of the many objectives, um, you know, money is curriculum, <laughs> uh, so to speak. I mean, it, it really is a, a, a new way of understanding and thinking about how the world works and how we can, you know, use money not as a means to an end, not as the, the end, but a means to an end, as, as you so eloquently put in your chapter for... Uh, The edited volume that just was released to uh, shamelessly <laughs> shame <laughs> plug that. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that's one of the most rewarding things about teaching these things in the classroom is that it really does take, you know, the process of them receiving the, the money in class for doing work and then thinking about, well, I couldn't have paid the taxes until after payday. So the, the lesson there is, is, is fundamental and important. And, You know, the practice of a new monetary politics is, is not as simple as just, you know, waving a wand and spending more money into the economy. It's really about, you know, connecting that money to the real resources that are needed to ameliorate or address, right, the systemic crises that we face, both in higher education and the climates and uh, public health, etc. And so the, the micro level issuance process I think really helps people see just how much work we really have to do and how many resources are sitting around latent not applied to those sorts of problems uh, because we're so busy trying to find the money instead of simply creating it and creating the re relationships that we need to mobilize the resources to, to make the world a uh, safer Uh, stable, resilient, happy, amenable, inclusive place that I think we would all prefer to live in. I want to say a little bit more, too, about how our approach both contrasts with but also newly complements some of the important um, critical work around university politics and university studies. Um, so somebody who comes to mind who's an important contemporary um, A figure in this field is Deverian Baldwin, right, in his, his really important book, In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower. And he's, uh, he's 
tracing a whole interconnected system of political economy in higher ed that is structured around uh, perverse incentives and pressures that are um, the result of states not keeping up their commitment to finance um, public higher ed and basically turning these supposed nonprofits with these tremendous public uh, authoritative powers into quasi-private entities who have to scramble for revenues and um, go into debt and speculate on the stock market. And this has tremendous consequences, as Baldwin tells us, across you know, issues of land and housing and labor and policing and healthcare. And while Baldwin teaches us a lot, and I so appreciate his work, it seems like that analysis only goes so far because it doesn't question the having to find the money incentive, right? Having to find the money through the taxpayers doesn't break out of the paradigm enough. And I think, um, there's a little bit of um there's a little bit of a i think an implication that money is this sort of necessary evil in this whole process and and so then it, it, the analysis i guess i would say ends up feeling like a list of indictments and then those indictments become the ground for which you to kind of uh mount an opposition right and i think what Turning off the where are we going to find the money question and turning on the endogenous credit creation um, frame does is it allows us to see universities as complex public authorities who are doing collective care work, but often very badly, <laughs> often very selectively. And, and it doesn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that it, it we would want to soften the kinds of critiques that Baldwin is making. You know these 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 systematic ex exploitations that he's he's making visible and politicizing are very important. But I think we're recognizing that nevertheless universities are community leaders in provisioning, not just fallen angels or you know te now terrible institutions. And that as these complex collective caretakers, they can they can reorganize themselves. And can you maybe say uh, two or three words uh, about how that what it would look like concretely? Like what areas to just to give listeners maybe an example of how the lives on the campuses, but also beyond, would look. You know, were the, were we to introduce unis? So when I I read Baldwin's book, I was really excited. Uh, because when I, when I read it, I see, see it through the chartalist MMT lens. Uh, and so from a concrete sort of, uh, space, one of the things that I've been wrestling with or thinking about in terms of, you know, the long legacy of the land grant institution and the university in particular is it, it's granted 501c3 status. They were gifted all of this property in all of these communities and very decentralized ways across the United States. 
stolen from Native Americans. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Thank you. And and so they don't pay any residential property tax. And so one of the ways that I've been thinking about how to diversify the circuit of the uni, so to speak. So, you know, the the initial idea was that uh, the unis would be spent into existence and people could use the unis in order to satisfy their tuition liability. And that would be the reciprocal circuit. And that you know, like my classroom currency runs into some limitations as students are graduating, they have no use for it any longer. You know, how much labor and resources are you really going to be able to utilize with uh, this limited sort of space for reciprocation? It also, you know, may or may not do much to change sort of the tuition sort of model. So in order to diversify the circuit, one of the things that I've imagined is that the university, instead of paying zero property taxes in their local communities, would pay some portion of those property taxes directly to their host communities in unis, right? And if the city is willing to accept the union property taxes from the university, then they would be willing to accept it from anyone. So immediately, right, in, in Ithaca, where I live, uh, Cornell University is by far the largest landowner in this town. Uh, they pay uh, almost they pay zero property taxes and they give an annual gift of about 1.2 1.3 million dollars to the city. Uh, and a couple of years ago uh, there was a, a group that did a study of you know just how much property taxes would be being spent if they paid their full amount and they the in the interview with the then mayor's Mayor Savante Myrick, uh, he said if Cornell paid their entire property tax bill, the property taxes for the rest of the residents in Ithaca could be cut in half. Right. Uh, so it's an enormous uh, amount of, of value uh, that would be made available. So if you, if you think about, you know, cutting your property taxes in half and thinking about the cost of homes, Right in housing, right. This is a, an opportunity to to really transform what that looks like, um, and we're doing that, right. Devarian Baldwin's book uh, points out all of these spaces where universities use not only their property and their tax exempt status, but uh, they use it in a way such that they're supporting the balance sheets of corporate partners, either to find new research in pharmaceuticals or in Arizona uh, to create new mixed use residential properties that also, uh, you know, contribute to the university objective of connecting with community. And maybe there's some classrooms there, but at the end of the day, right, the, the, corporate partner gets financing because the bank is confident that they're going to be able to generate enough revenues because they won't be paying the full tax liabilities on those commercial properties, right? So that we're already booking uh, the tax exempt status as future wealth, just in a very narrow way where we could be issuing the currency to book future creation of, say, carbon sequestration or diversified uh, farming systems that better connect people to local foods or uh, helping to train larger groups of people to help students with reading disabilities in middle schools, right? There's 
there's a significant amount of work that's not being done to address the problems that we have. And, and the problem, the reason why we're not doing that is because we can't find the money to do it when the money's really sitting uh, right in front of us as a design problem. And we can't see the ways to design and experiment in those spaces because we're spending so much time trying to convolutedly book future earnings <laughs> and revenues that are, you know, just turning the money into more money instead of turning it into meaningful goods uh, and expanded capacity for our communities. And I think we have to, there's not one answer to that question, as I think Ben's answer is beginning to suggest. Um, a uni, a uni project, a uni system from the classroom to the federal government um, can transform relations all the way up and down and back and forth. Um, so, you know, we can, we can talk about unis um, administering Green New Deals in cities and counties. We can talk about um, uh, community uh, staff and faculty governance. We can talk about a participatory budgeting. And, you know, all of these possibilities, of course, are available to be thought, to be bought for, to be theorized, to be developed. But I would argue that when they are all brought together in a project that is not zero sum and that is not oriented around finding the money, um, they all take on a kind of new capacity. Now, this doesn't prevent neoliberal governance practices, um, nasty administrators and <laughs> university leaders with nasty politics. It doesn't prevent any of, any of that from continuing to do what it does. But that nastiness is usually justified by not only the naturalized austerity, but the naturalized necessity to find revenue such that even the critics of that nastiness can't see beyond that horizon. So it would, it would open up these opportunities for contestation and the old excuses are, will no, no longer resonate in the same way they do now and they have for years and years. Yeah, those are great answers. Thank you so much uh, for that. It, it, I'm really starting to get a sense of how broad that project would be and how broad the potential of that project is. So when we first uh, began the project, um, as I think Ben um, might have referenced previously, um, this is the beginning of the pandemic and the Fed was unlike Congress um, was willing, at least at first, was willing to really um, act boldly and to experiment. And they opened up their balance sheets and created all kinds of new facilities and new, new ways of um, responding to financial crisis. Now, there's much to be critiqued in how they did that and how some of those programs ultimately played out. but the the fed became a site in 2020 and into 2021 
of such bold paradigm um, breaking <laughs> that it it became a site of politicization, essentially. So we at first were thinking, well, we can uh, we can recommend for university communities, activists, organizers, and intrepid faculty and leaders to to lead a movement to issue their own currencies and then demand or ask <laughs> or dare <laughs> the Fed to backstop the liquidity of those currencies using a new facility that they had opened up, the municipal liquidity facility that was mostly for municipal bonds, right? And ultimately that the the way the the way that was designed was terrible and the way it was administered was terrible because it was ultimately just about so-called um, propping up the confidence of the bond market, right? They didn't actually really want to purchase any of those. They just wanted to show that they were ready to purchase them so that the bond investors would feel comfortable enough to, um, to invest more. Anyway, that, that situation called, I, we thought, for a, an intervention, right? And that's sort of what we were thinking of. In the meantime, we've turned our attention to another uh, intrepid thing that has happened at the federal level, uh, and that is the drafting of the Public Banking Act, which some of our friends helped to draft. And the Public Banking Act is, is what it sounds like. It's, it's, it, it, you know, it has not gone to vote, um, but it is an act that is designed to explore, support, and create a system of public banks in the United States. And it provides all kinds of support for doing so. And so our reading of the Public Banking Act is, A, it's worded in such a way that universities could count as nonprofit organizations that would fall under the, the Public Banking Act. Um, they could be given what we call the finance franchise, the, the capacity, the legal ability to issue credit on behalf of the U.S. government. We also argue um, in our forthcoming piece that well, we might, we might want to work for a, um, an amendment to the Public Banking Act just to make it clear, right? just to stipulate that universities are included rather than arguing about the, the given language, maybe before it's put to vote. In any case, we now see it as part of a potential public banking fight that would frame the uni in this broader conversation about who has the, the finance franchise in the United States. So that's, that's how some of our how, how some of our thoughts about the project have shifted over time is we've really moved from this politicizing this emergency facility at the Fed as a kind of lender or purchaser of last resort to a more kind of active provisioning as part of public banking at the federal level, which again is not to say that that's the only path, right? We're, we're, we talk about both bottom up and top down always having to work in tandem and uh, speaking to one another. But that's the, that's the federal path that we're seeing right now. Yeah, I think that that's a really good point. Uh, because, uh, you know, what does a public bank look like? 
right? How does a public bank operate? How does it make decisions? Uh, what is it investing in, right? The, the language around the bill is pretty vague, right? Uh, AOC says that it's an opportunity to ameliorate systemic crises. What specifically does that look like? And, and this is, these are the questions that also come up when we talk about the Green New Deal and a jobs guarantee. What are people going to do? What are these interventions? How does this impact my daily life? And I really see universities as being a, a really great place for experimenting and imagining what that looks like, right? Um, I think lots of people have a really nice idea of what public banking looks like at the retail level, right? Through the post office, for example. But what does the investment arm of a public banking sector look like and how does it operate? How does it assess the quality of the financial instruments and what it is that it's, it's executing and what are the returns that we're getting? And I think David Freund's work in particular really uh, has been inspirational for me here in the way that the United States really reformatted the housing sector after World War II, right, uh, to greatly enhance the availability of mortgages and ex extend uh, the time frame for repayment. And in that process, they had to really reinvent and create an entirely new sector of appraisal and thinking about how the Who's going to make these decisions where organizations are uh, licensed and accredited to establish that a house is worth X amount of dollars? And this is what we need to be doing and thinking about. This is an intervention into climate change that is going to uh, relieve us of so much carbon output and sequester so much carbon. And these are the impacts that we're predicting and forecasting will occur, right? very much a grants sort of model of understanding impact and outcomes and the, whether or not we're really reaching success in our projects uh, i think is a space where universities are really well suited to start building that sort of infrastructure and learning by doing through sort of a ground up sort of approach to these problems um and the you know, the, the language in the bill, both there and in the eCash Act, are, are really outlining that we need participation and experimentation to ensure that as we're creating secure and privacy-respecting and inclusive monetary systems, uh, that they are, in fact, functional and operating. And I would much rather us experiment with these technologies at small scales, right, in different communities and being able to share successes and failures in an open and honest way than, say, the monetarist experiment <laughs> that we seem to be pretty uh, intent on reliving from the 1980s to, to quell price overheating with a recession. That doesn't seem to be the way that we should be experimenting with monetary theory, right? It should be able to be done in much more controlled and smaller spaces so that we can reduce the sort of ill effects and the, the just devastation in real lives that that sort of macro monetary experimentation entails. And this really, what I'm hearing you say and I want to develop, this really rethinks what banking is and what it can be, right? So we are essentially saying extend credit creation functions that have been relegated to a private banking system 
two universities. But we don't stop there. And what we're up to really, really unsettles what a bank even is or could be. So one of the threads I want to pick up here is we have this this sense that investment and production um, get separated through this private banking system, right? That the, the banks have the money and they decide who gets it, who, who, which firms are going to get it, who are going to do the production, right? And, and there's a division of labor there. Now, is it in fact actually much more complicated and, and entangled? Of course it is. But I think we have this idea that there is this kind of separation, whereas universities are productive centers in addition to investment centers. And I think universities being, for as problematic as, as they can be, universities being the hubs of cities, of counties, of communities, um, and imbricated in them much better situates them for for doing the investing rather than the investing being uh something that we're you know farming out to chase or you know other other you know wall street banks yeah i mean and community banking is shown to be effective and, and a, a good way of running small businesses and, you know, the disconnection in the, the mortgage industry, right? Where, you know, the, these, you can get a mortgage on your phone. <laughs> that doesn't do much for know your customer. And, you know, when they immediately sell off your mortgage and a hundred others in one fell swoop, right? They have no incentive of seeing that those are paid back in a, in a timely or meaningful manner. Uh, you know, the, the creation of the investment products or systems, right. The public provisioning that I envision is a interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary con connection of the people that are living and doing the work. Uh, you know, I, one of the projects that my classroom uni is helping to, um, finance or motivates or mobilize the resources for is a, an edible park right? that is going to be a public space where people will reconnect uh, with nature that is celebrating indigenous culture and past of the area with, um, you know, the revival of plants that uh, have been exterminated by weed killers and things of this nature that actually have really strong medicinal and flavors and all sorts of properties that we've kind of forgotten about that uh, previous cultures really understood uh, as a, a meaningful connection to nature. And so, you know, these re-embedding of, you know, the connections between people and ideas and the environment, um, all start to melt away all the ways in which higher education has been morphed into the, you know, our different silos where uh, we're all our specialists and we're all competing over scarce resources. And it would really give us an opportunity to branch out and to collaborate across the university with other nonprofit actors in our communities and to, you know, in a system like SUNY, Right. Uh, it's really just by way of conferences and things that I've had the great fortune of 
getting to know Yaka, but the SUNY system as a 64 campus uh, institution across the state of New York, right? There's really not a community that isn't really within easy driving distance of one of these spaces. So we're talking about projects that would cover the state. Uh, and if you start to think about questions of transportation and the movements of students and people being able to work at multiple SUNYs, uh, you know, then it starts to become a, a system, right? I, I'm, you know, in healthcare, right? I was always so very frustrated uh, during the time that my mom was sick that, you know, all of these doctors, white vests said the health system and none of them talked to each other. None of their accounting or their charts or any of that stuff was connected in any meaningful way. It was just, they all got to be marketed with the same hospital system. Uh, and SUNY, I, I feel like in our competition across our campuses for students and scarce resources and things like that, we're not leveraging the full power of what it would be to be coordinated and collaborating uh, and tackling the problems that the state of New York so desperately needs to be addressed. And we can run small programs and justify them as small programs uh, rather than in the credit creation model, rather than putting these programs on the chopping block because, oh, well, you know, demand is down and so they're not bringing in revenue. And so why even have them? If, if you're not chasing scarce dollars, you can proliferate little experiments here and there. I mean, it, it changes all of our research questions fundamentally. And it also changes how people think about money. I, just to go back to that, because when you say, you know, the doctors are separated from the accountants and, and we come to experience ourselves as, you know, passive victims of a monetary system that's out of reach, that's outside of our lives. And that kind of like maybe contaminates, you know, uh, the university or makes it, you know, work in ways that we don't like. And I think what I hear you say is that if money creation and the other things that we do are no longer seen as separate and we experience them as intertwined and inseparable and necessarily, uh, you know, going hand in hand, then that becomes a real, you know, a very large-scale classroom for reimagining society, right? In the sense that it's always something that is in the process of being coordinated, and we are the ones who can do that. Yeah, I mean, I've always seen it as a little bit arbitrary that, you know, we go to college from 18 to 22. Uh, I think there's a lot of Americans <laughs> in the, you know, later stages of life that would really benefit from having access to coursework and education and uh, re-engaging in new literatures. I mean, you know, part of the reason I think we're in so much trouble economically is that, you know, you can see when a politician is talking about the economy, you know, the the scissors moving in, in their head up from their Eco 101 class 40 years ago, and the textbook hasn't changed. Uh, and that sort of robotic understanding of how things operate is detrimental. So, you know, having a lifelong learning fabric, right? The university is this lifelong learning social fabric where any and all age groups, people that have been to college before going back would just enrich the experience 
uh, in ways that you know are fun to imagine. Yeah, we can reintroduce open enrollment. We can have multiple kinds of programs that differentiate, you know, the traditional uh, four-year degree. Which in some ways they're already trying to do, right, with all these certification programs and your new types of master's programs. Like, but they're all these things are all like structured in a way to generate revenue, right? You know, like you go to a master's program, you're not going to get funding to be a GTA, right? So lots of colleges love big master's programs so they can break in that revenue um, and maybe get a GTA in the process. Uh, so we don't have to do that anymore. We don't, students won't have to, for example, spend their whole summers working as free laborers for a corporation because they have to get an internship in order to get a job at that particular institution when they graduate, right? We will be affording them, uh, you know, learning by doing real world experience throughout the year that will help supplement both the cost of their day-to-day -day life and their education such that they don't have to leave the university straddled with massive amounts of debt. I think another major, um, maybe theoretical point here is turning around the the kind of causal relationship that that is often understood between a university and uh, financing the private sector, where um, very often. You know, I guess the expression to use is, you know, that the the tail is wagging the dog, right? So, uh, the, well, the university is just so dependent on the bond investors and you know the hedge fund, their hedge fund, and that whole world, and uh, like all the private contractors, like yeah, the university, you know. It could do these good things, but, you know, really, where's the power? You know, all the private contractors run everything now. Um, whereas I think what we want to say is like, no, no, no. It's, it's very similar to, to what MMT argues about the federal government, where we sort of imagine that the tail is wagging the dog, that the federal government, you know, is always too, too broke or spending too much, but is always sort of riding the waves of this force that's outside of them. Um, so we're saying like the federal government, the universities and university systems are these, you know, they're at the center of authority and provisioning. They set wage floors, they implement wage ceilings, right? As often the largest employers in cities and in counties, if, if they raise the wage floor, which actually my university just did a little bit, not enough, but they, they're bumping everybody up to, to 15 an hour, um, you know, that, that tremendously affects other wage um, ratios in the rest of the city and surrounding areas, right? So the university has to fess up to its power <laughs> and fess up to its capacities. And fess up to is its causal centrality in for us, and that's another thing that the 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 uni project does, and that's part of the pedagogy. Totally excellent. That's great, and that that makes me really think. Since we're you know that is very different from other types of community currencies, you know that since we're 
talking about Ithaca, about the experiments in Ithaca, it's, it has a very different uh, perspective on how collective life works and, and, uh, and how it's organized. Maybe, I, I don't know, since, since you live in Ithaca, uh, Ben, could you maybe say two words about that, the difference between how you think about the uni and uh, the previous experiments? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the community and complementary currency literature and uh, these experiments, um, you know, many of them are modeled not on the MMT framework, but on sort of the, the fictional narrative of the barter economy, right? That if we add more currency into the system, we'll be further facilitating the exchange of goods and services and, you know, very much like Bitcoin, right? It can be sort of this decentralized thing uh, that circulates and solves these problems. Um, and the, what's fundamentally different here for us, I think, is, you know, we, we're trying to downsize the idea of MMT to local communities, right? How do we leverage the knowledge of a tax-driven circuit at smaller scales and at smaller scales such that, you know, the tax driven circuit is even, you know, maybe, uh, too obligatory, right? Maybe it's not necessarily, not necessary that it's so coercive, right? This sort of threat of, you know, incarceration for not paying your taxes sort of thing. Right? What, how do we structure a reciprocal obligation such that it, it allows the currency to continue to circulate while also really highlighting the fact that money is a collective endeavor, right? That is a public instrument that should be uh, designed and created through public discourse uh, in a way that is just not uh, in our society. And I think that that's one of the really beautiful things in your book, Jakob. And, and I'm curious you know, in your studies of moral economies of money and these colonial systems, were there, um, you know, happenstances or similar experiences in these communities that brought people together to, to question the money? Or what were sort of the catalysts to say, hey, we can do this in a, in a better way. Let's start organizing our tobacco uh, as a form of reciprocal pain uh, that was the catalyst or maybe you can speak a little bit to that. Uh. Sure. So I think it was, it was really like in, in many periods of, of us history, it was really clear to quite a few money users that there were different levels of, of money and different levels of money creation. And that you could, uh, that municipalities or states or individual provinces could create that kind of accept acceptability. So this is, you know, in a sense, this is really reconnecting with earlier, for in many respects, deeply problematic, but still, you know, real monetary systems where, you know, colonists, didn't, they had this experience of paying taxes in either in kind or in, uh, in, in labor at the label, at the local level, or which was their preferred way in bills of credit. And they knew that since they had done that for a while, they also tried to, to you know, well, you know what, the provincial government in Massachusetts no longer uh, is allowed to create credit and, and issue bills of credit. So we'll just do it at the local level. 
and you know we'll 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 maybe you know five or ten towns decided to accept that uh in uh in payment of taxes right and so so they started knowing that that could work it also worked in new york city when they created waterworks in the 18th century just before uh the war of independence and they put together what was then a high-tech uh water system by issuing issuing municipal bills of credit by issuing municipal money that worked only because the the university i mean the, the municipality accepted it in payment of taxes so 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 all those different levels of accept, acceptability and uh of organizing collective life were i think a lot more visible and i think it, what what the two of you talk about is something very similar structurally in this in the sense that different levels of society become more legible as you understand what's going on in a, in a classroom. Uh, in the classroom, you understand the federal government better. If, you've already, if you already have the, the MMT understanding of the federal government, then it will be more plausible for you to, to understand uh, uh, the unis, right? And there's no reason for, for not multiplying those, those layers and... Uh, and and exploring the possibilities for you know for democratization and, and inclusion at all those different levels and if one of the levels fails well maybe the other one is ready to to jump in you know maybe if one level cannot provision people then maybe maybe we have something else to fall back on so there's no longer this monoculture of just one uh possible source of money yeah that's really great and it I think it gets at another way in which what we're up to is different than certain traditions of complementary currency. I don't want to say all of them, but but certain traditions, which you know the 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 instrument is called complementary because it's not the main currency, but it's one that is situated seemingly on the outside. So there's an inside outside kind of um, almost like spatial <laughs> cognitive map. And the, the outside, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's precarious. It doesn't have, it's only as good as, you know, people are willing to barter with it on an individual level. And, um, you know, there, I think it has a kind of an evil twin, which is like the company script model right the the company town that you know um gets gets workers into debt um and makes it so that they they get paid in their own currency and can only use that currency at the company's stores and buying company newspapers and we're all familiar with that um but all of those the the sort of good and evil versions of that kind of inside outside model are being challenged here with our uni project because yes, like like the the histories that Jakob has uh, has studied, that's not actually fully what that, that that really doesn't exhaust what is actually going on, and that current there isn't there isn't just one currency. Even the U.S. dollar is a heterogeneous hierarchy of multiple instruments. We have dollars that are created by fiscal appropriation. We have dollars that are created in the Federal Reserve System. And then we have, you know, all kinds of dollars that are created in our wild, you know, 
um, digital financial you know system and shadow shadow banks and things like that, right? Um, so the it's not like and we and yet we call all uh, most of those things we call them the dollar, right? Even though they're a heterogeneous collection of institutions that have different design models, right? The fiscal appropriation model is not the same design model as the the Federal Reserve System model, right? So, you know, I think we, when we were first working on this project, um, we got some negative feedback that suggested, oh, well, this is sort of weak. It's it's weak, like a complementary currency. Or worse, it's evil, like company script. But either way, it's sort of outside the dollar. And we want to be helping people really, and we want to really be giving them the dollar. And I think, you know, one way of answering this is to say, Yes, not only is the dollar this heterogeneous hierarchy of contested designs and claims, but I I wouldn't necessarily even say that the uni isn't the dollar, <laughs> right? I mean, we could say it's a mode of the dollar. It's it's one iteration of the dollar in the dollar system. Now, if it's the if it's just uh, unis in one of our classrooms, it has a limited a, it has a limited function in the dollar system, just, you know, in not in the same, not qualitatively the same, but in, in a similar sense that Starbucks gift cards have, they're denominated in dollars, right? You have $5 gift card, right? But they have limited receivability. They have limited, a, 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 a limited circulation power, right? So this, to me, is how, how we're conceiving the uni and trying to get out of this sort of inside-outside, weak, strong uh, way of thinking about currency creation and currency um, circulation. Yeah, that's really excellent. Uh, to, see, to see it not as, 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 not as complementary as outside, but as part of a hierarchy, yes. And I, I do have another question, and that is, you know, the people who, who told you while you're trying to reintroduce company script, they might have, you know, thought about something that I, I was also thinking about, which is, you know, who gets to accept that, who, who, who has to accept those when probably in, a, in any local setting, most people would still prefer the, the dollar or some people might still prefer the dollars because I, I have a hard time seeing, um, let's say, faculty and staff overnight switching to you know tomorrow i'll accept 80 percent of my my salary uh in <laughs> in unis so i i, I don't know if, if the you know how that would work and uh yes period i think this there's multiple ways of answering this one is at the level of language and packaging right so um like i said we ha you can buy a 20 dollar starbucks gift card and you yeah. have 20 American dollars <laughs> in Starbucks gift cards. And I think I rhetorically would want to pursue a similar strategy that uh. you have, right, that, that here's an amount of $200 of unis <laughs> um, huh. rather, rather than rhetorically making sense of the uni as it's just own weird thing perfect yes okay that's exactly what i needed to understand it because it's like i have 20 uh you know i have 500 dollars in my bank account right that's not the same thing as federal reserve notes 
It's right. lower in the hierarchy, and yet I'm convinced I have $200, and no one will dispute that I do have $200. Right. So, 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 so that is, that is, I, 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 I love the way you put it, and it really makes me understand that I was still a little bit so far thinking of the units as complementary when in fact they're not complementary. It's one way of implementing credit money creation uh, in the dollar system. And it will be very tempting, or for me, you know, it, it, it was very tempting to, to, to think, yes, kind of like, I love it. And I think of it as complimentary, but actually, no, it's not, you know, it's $20, period. Right. So I really yeah. thank you for that. I really needed that. And I think when you start to think about, you know, the gift card and all the other ways that we change our U.S. dollars into less receivable instruments, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it starts to make it seem a lot less weird. Yeah, huh. scary, weird. Especially when it comes to, like, paying for higher education, right? I, I've got special savings accounts for my children that I can't use any of that money for, but it's still U.S. dollars, but it's U.S. dollars that can really only be used to pay for higher education. Yes. By me without being taxed, but that money is being sent to Wall Street and hedge funds to, to grow. It is buffering and creating a whole other stream of revenue that is outside of the university system. It, it seems a little strange to me that, you know, we invest in sending our kids to college in places that aren't directly improving the places we want to send our kids to go to educate, right? Why aren't our savings accounts expanding the resources and educational opportunities in these places? And the uni could be that sort of instrument, right? Where you don't have to save for college and Wall Street funds. You can save for college and uni funds. And you can design those in all sorts of different ways. Uh, so, you know, the, the surface... Right. The, the idea from the classroom to sort of the public banking act, right? These are all just like part of peeling away the, the layers of an onion that has been decades in the making of this revenue higher education model. And uh, there's just so many places where things could be being done differently that I think do a better job of organizing public provisioning to do the things that we really want it to do, right? The, from the university mission statement to questions about what education is as a public good to the provision and creation of all of our public goods from healthcare to public spaces, right? uh, you know, our parks and where we recreate, uh, you know, as an urban planner and designer and thinking at, at a, from that perspective, right, the the amount of reductions in heart disease from having adequate shade in your community and things of this nature uh, allow us to, you know, plant trees and do things that are nice for people that right now just seem unaffordable or undoable. Um, and we don't have to outsource to private for-profit corporations. We can build up provisioning capacities within the university as we are um, learning from, collaborating from, with, uh, listening to, and partnering with communities that have been policed 
and not served uh, and and are being displaced by by for-profit university um, administration. Yes, so we could start insourcing stuff like food production or food provisioning or kitchens or all kinds of things that, yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, I mean, it's just like simple examples from my own life, you know, on the, the campus at UC Berkeley that I was at, um, which has its problems. Um, you know, there were several food establishments that were, had been there for a long time and were, were local, local businesses, right? And um, they were a part of the community. Uh, the, the campus that I've worked at for the last decade plus, it's all Subways and Chick-fil-A's and, you know, of course, all of, all of it is actually Aramark, right? The, the, that's the firm that is just licensing all the, the logos and the, 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 the food supply chains and, you know, all the stuff for these subcontracted workers, um, you know, to come in and, and do the work, right? We could totally rethink that. If we're if we are owning up to our own authority and responsibility as community provisioners, yeah, beautifully put. I think another part of this project for us that I want to flag is yes, it's a proposal and it's an evolving proposal but it's also what I've come to call a problem space that invites participation. Um, so it's not, what we're offering is not the uni, one thing, um, yeah. and then that's going to be the solution, um, but rather a kind of ongoing, ongoing participation in a paradigm that opens up new questions, new fights, New possibilities, new responsibilities. <laughs> um, yeah, that yeah, like and, that, and that's what we're in now, right? I mean, you know, neoliberal austerity didn't just explode on the scene, right? It's been a slowly evolving thing where it's just like closing off more and more possibilities for decades. Yeah, while opening up all kinds of uh, private and precarious ones. Sure, right, and yeah. Absolutely. I, I love the idea that, you know, it's a problem space. It's open invitation. I think the conversation that Erica and Will had was dead on and thinking about debt as sort of this unifying rallying call, right? That this, you know, calls into question university debt. It calls into question student debt. It calls into question what public debt at large is. And we can experiment with that in really new ways that are nowhere near as limiting as, as what we're currently facing. Yeah. We should, we should mention that um, we have the goal of making higher ed, make higher ed free again. Uh, but that in the problem space of the uni, that is contingent upon um, what level of receivability um, any given uni project is working at, right? Yeah. So, so if we have a uni based on the Public Banking Act, then that is probably the most capacious, authoritative, and powerful uni that we can have. Um, 
as long as it is a participatory one all the way down. And in that case, we can absolutely um, not only <laughs> abolish all student debt, but abolish all um, all tuition and fees, right? Um, if we're talking about local experimentation in like a classroom or a program, or even just at one university, then then what we have to move more slowly toward reducing tuition but it's uh you know so so we have a, we have big dreams and a big goal but that achieving that goal is going to have to be connected to well which part of the fight or which part of the build out are are we investing in at any given time yeah and you know the more people that are participating in various ways either you know, through advocation at federal and state level policy banking to sharing successes that they're having in these classrooms, the more evidence, the more power, the more buy-in, the more people get involved in the, and the, and the better the process will be, the more informed, the better trained people will be to be sort of the administrators of a public banking act. I mean, it's not going to be an easy job, just like, you know, being the head underwriter for uh, Bank of the America isn't a, an easy job, but uh, it's a better job, I would argue. <laughs> and, you know, we have um, less so in the humanities, but in the sciences and social sciences more, we have big grants and then big, big, big initiatives and research programs and labs that, you know, are granting and provisioning and keeping track and and doing yeah. doing that Works kind of already being done. management yeah i want to get to the point when we're not simply defending this this proposal for the uni i want to get to the point where other people are teaching us about what the uni is and what it can be that's where i want yeah. to get that's that would be magic. That would be phenomenal. And it's a big, it's a big hurdle because it's a very different way of imagining. It's a very different way. It's 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 a different kind of emotional um, relationship to the world, right? As we were discussing with your um, fellow faculty members in in your union meeting, it's it's it it requires a different emotional stance. Yeah, it's hard to be optimistic sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But this this would make that a lot easier. And kind of in the you're alone sort of narrative and all of that stuff. Yeah, because like how do you make the switch of thinking that of yourself as a money issue, you know, and of thinking that's like Well, doing it helps. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean Creating Benjamins, and I, I talked to, I touched base with Michael uh, at Energy Web and said that I'm presenting it again, and I'm hoping to recruit a bunch more faculty to join me at Cortland, and he was like, yeah, the more the merrier scale is not a problem for us. Like, if you've got people at other universities that want to use the system, right, we can get to work on trying to think through like all the different technological dynamics of 
allowing your currencies to be sort of measured and understood and how many are circulating and how much of the tax liabilities are being extinguished and all of that stuff on like a very large scale, uh, which is super exciting. Yeah, I have mine right now on paper. They call them googly, googly shellex. <laughs> I think, I think too, there's a, there's a double move, which is inviting people and teaching them about how this could work, right? How, how you can be a, a currency issuer and provisioner in your classroom or in a larger program or working with, working with, you know, community outreach organizations on your, on your campus and, um, things like that. But there's also the um, the flip of the switch, which which is just a, a mental one, which is just realizing, coming to realize that you're all. I mean, if if right now we're talking about instructors, right? You're already doing it, right? You already are in a system of credits, and you have students who work for credits, and you 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 assess those. You assess their performance through usually grades. Not everybody does that, but my campus does that. And those grades are receivable as part of the university system, right? That leads leads to a diploma, but also when you graduate and when and when you leverage your degree toward a job or toward a, another degree, you know, those grades might matter and be receivable <laughs> uh, and valuable for different reasons. So we're you know, we're already doing it. We just think that we've just so naturalized it that we don't, we don't, we don't know that we're doing it. Yeah. And when you do it for the first time, it's kind of like the, the, the similar, you know, shift, you know, from just being a receiver of grades to all of a sudden the creator of grades. And you that's know, like, true. That's true. Yeah. 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 And you which feel I, this. I hated it and yeah. I still hate it, you know, you feel this responsibility. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But this is not something I would hate, right? It's different. It's a different kind of credit. I hate issuing those credits, but I don't have to hate it. I mean, I, I don't think I would hate issuing unis, right? That's different. Yeah, and you might hate addition. You might hate issuing classroom. I mean, whether whether they're like traditional grades, like A, B, C, D. I mean, we we could imagine all kinds of different evaluative modes. I mean, they can be just qualitative or whatever. But I think you would feel less bad about that if it wasn't in the context of a austere punitive cutthroat system where there's not enough to go around right i mean we we might feel i don't know different people have different views on on grading but we might feel not as bad even using traditional grades when when lower grades don't mean abjection Exactly. And when they don't, don't pay $5,000 for their B minus. Yeah, 100%. I mean, the level of honesty and feedback, right? Where, you know, if you're known as a hard grader, students will still take your class because they know they're getting really good education rather than avoiding it just because they can't take that risk in their GPA. It's amazing. People definitely avoid my classes because I have a reputation of being hard. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, 
but I'm not. I mean, <laughs> so you say. It's just, <laughs> I'm really just a snuggly teddy bear. You are. <laughs> <laughs> my mission post sabbatical, my this next phase of my career is to soften that a little bit. I think part of that's just like being new and not wanting to be taken advantage of and knowing that you're doing it right and not being, you know, letting people slack off and that kind of thing. I think it's just part of the mindset maybe, but I'm not nearly as scared of that anymore. I mean, I really see education as sort of an opt-in some some students are going to opt out, and that's okay. And I'll do my best to keep you there. But uh, if you're not opting in, then I'm going to continue to focus on those that are really buying in and ready to take it on and that sort of thing. And I, I think the uni gives us the, the freedom to do that too, right? You don't have to issue a uni to a student that's not doing the work, right? Just like the jobs guarantee. And the uni can be a part of... And enable. The uni can be a part of the... The job guarantee. Um, I co-authored a, a a piece with William Soss um, a year or two ago that was published in the journal Luminalities, and um, I, I will give credit where credit is due. This this was um, Billy Soss's um, idea um, that I supported uh, and co-wrote with him, but this was very, very much his idea. So he was he came to me with this idea for a Green New Deal um, driven and university-focused um, academic job guarantee, which would um, leverage federal funds to extend security and benefits equivalent to tenure to all workers on public college and university campuses. So he, we called this the um, SBET or SPET, <laughs> um, Security and Benefits Equivalent to Tenure where essentially termination has to be for cause rather than at will. So this, this would, um, coupled with a robust unionization um, uh, effort and legislation, um, would, put, would make worker power um, much, much greater. And, and it would, it would um, create you know, uh, uh, a kind of collective safety net for expanding not just worker power, but the provisioning powers of the of the uni currency project. Wow. Yeah, I have to read that. That kind of slipped by. That's amazing. The title of the paper, just so we all know, uh, is Performative Public Finance for Higher Education, Academic Labor, and the Green New Deal. Yeah, it's terrific. Yes, I'm going to read that right away. So uh, I wanted to ask, maybe as a, as a last question, what, how do you see uh, the project unfolding in the next years and months? And what do you think the next steps should be? That's a terrific question. You know, first, I hope that, you know, this discussion and uh, the peace and academe sparks larger discussions and, and really... I see the uni project is something that is evolving and changing and uh, it's not really this, you've got to do X or Y in order to be involved, but really be open to any sort of suggestions or ideas and participation. Uh, for me, 
you know, the next iteration of the uni for me is going to take place in my urban class and helping to build an edible park. Uh, I'm hoping to expand it up into the Adirondacks, uh, where I'm working with some great community folks up there to ameliorate questions of food security and clean water and access to healthcare uh, sorts of questions and issues. Uh, so, yeah, I'm hoping that, you know, as as more people get involved either on my campus or across SUNY campuses or from other places that we we start putting together a database of all the beautiful things that we're getting done by mobilizing student work uh, and the production of public goods uh, in all different fields, right? From public art spaces to uh, food systems to uh, in-stream habitat interventions, whatever you think is uh, a way of ameliorating the climate crisis or social inequities, uh, I would be super excited to collaborate and hear more. And, you know, at, at the other end, hopefully folks will start advocating for the Public Banking Act and writing letters uh, for state level policies for public banks, the Job Guarantee, the Green New Deal, the eCash Act, all of those sorts of really amazing federal legislation, legislative projects that uh would all contribute to sort of moving beyond the austerity model that we're living in today. And just to close, we're also imagining this as an alternative to a lot of the uh, frenetic and excited activity around blockchain and all kinds of other um, other forms that sort of build themselves as private currencies um, from from you know, crypto to NFTs and this kind of thing that have, you know, proven to be uh, actually insecure and uh, volatile and certainly not serving uh, public purposes. And, um, you know, you have still, even after all of these market crashes, companies like Facebook or Meta now, you know, investing millions if not billions of dollars in propping up a vision of the future in which these private monies uh, are supposed to play a central role. So, you know, the notion that um, people can start participating in money creation is actually everywhere, right? It's on the, it's, it's in headlines. It's, you know, it's, it's on social media. It, it's just that that's such a terrible model. It's such a horrible model. But if we can, if we can harness some of that energy toward public purpose, then we're talking. So I think with that, I think we can end. Thanks so much for joining me for this great conversation, Ben and Jakob. That was so much fun. Thanks for organizing. Thank you.